You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you might be. I'm Avram Kivalevich, and this is On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. Obviously, the challenges of Jewish education during the period of corona are immense. And some of them have been dealt with, and we've talked about it in our previous program with Rabbi Katz, about how the teleconferencing and Zoom and other platforms have been used and how they can even be used better in terms of education. Making sure that the students who have been taken out of the physical brick-and-mortar building are still studying even where they are, and the teachers are using the marvels of technology to make sure that their lessons are going on. I think hand-in-hand with this, we have to be concerned, and I'm sure educators are concerned and principals are concerned about explaining, especially to the youngest and vulnerable members of the student body, about what's going on. Why can't we be outside? Why do we have to distance? The social distancing and fear and the numbers that we're hearing, especially here in the tri-state area, which are immense and terrible, they need counsel. The students need to be counseled as well, along with education. In fact, the counseling, I would say, is probably a stronger part of education than even the reading, writing, and arithmetic, of getting the students through this, of making them continue to appreciate life and be positive. So counseling is very crucial today. So I took a little bit of a left turn, although I don't think so, in asking someone that I know is one of the, uh, a real expert in counseling. Uh, I'm here with uh, Rabbi Moshe Bramowitz, who for over 20 years was the director of pastoral care and Barnabas Health Center and hospice. Uh, he was a, a military chaplain for uh, 23 years, including a very prestigious uh, position in West Point Military Academy. Uh, he had his residency uh, and it, in, where he got his training to be a, a pastoral educator and counselor and one of the premier teaching hospitals in the United States. That's the New Haven Hospital connected with Yale University. Uh, it was there in the trenches that he was able to really learn his craft and trade and is a very extremely respected person in this area. I know uh, uh, he also served as executive director of the uh, Kushner uh, High School, I believe, and elementary school, which I also taught for in a couple of years. And as executive there is very, and I know him personally, and I know that issues of education mean a lot to him. And today, as we're talking not only about students who need counseling, I think a lot of people need counseling. So, Maish, I know that was a long-winded introduction. Thanks for being with us here on On Principle. My pleasure. Um, let's talk about how you would, let's talk with students and then move to the bigger picture. Students are here and they're getting their teachers and their, their parents are helping them with their lessons and they're in front of their video cams. Now, how does the counseling come in? Who should be the agents of counseling for these students? Who should be telling them what's, what's going on in this period? Who, who should be talking to them? Well, I think you pointed out that obviously they are at home with their parents. The parents are the first line of uh, alertness as to what's going on with the kids. How are they functioning? How is this transition, which just happened? One, two, three. You go to school today, 
and there's a transition, a orientation to let you know what's going on. These kids don't have a orientation, so to speak, except what can be provided by their parents um, and also, however, it's going to be presented by the by the school and by the teachers themselves. So this preparation is so important. If it doesn't get the message doesn't get across the way you'd like to get across, then you really do have issues of who can counsel these children. Are they going to listen to their parents? Because after all, the parents are um, always there, and very often they're not the, the best uh, trans, transmitter of what's going on and what they need to do, etc. Maybe some resistance. So someone outside the parental uh, sviva might be a much more appropriate and effective way to counsel children and help them with their problems. Uh, so I think what we're saying is, and, and we hope some of our principals will be listening to our program here, is that they should make sure that besides the teachers, there should be set aside time for counselors to be talking to the kids. Um, uh, otherwise, the children are going to be very confused. I know my grandchildren uh, came over uh, to wish me a happy birthday last week, and they had to keep their distance way in their car and they didn't understand why they they couldn't give Saba their present. These are issues that every single family is experiencing and why they can't come and say the Mamishkan at the Seder. So who, you, you, we need to have professional counselors because the teachers obviously aren't trained. They didn't go to New Haven uh, uh, Hospital. They didn't learn under the people that, that you have learned from. They haven't gotten training in that. The principals, the educators, the people making the decisions have to make sure that the kids... <clears throat> Not only get FaceTime, video time about this, they need to get counseling as well. But again, how is that counseling going to happen? Kids, again, are you going to just talk to them? Are you going to ask them questions? Should it be one-on-one? Should it be as a group? It's a, it's, it's a quandary, I believe, right? Well, I think there also has to be some kind of triage, which children really are suffering. And somebody on the spot, whether it be through the video conferencing, the teacher sees what's going on with the child, or if that's not the case, the parent should be attuned to what's going on. I'll tell you an interesting story. It has nothing to do with exactly our topic, but how adults can be totally oblivious to what's going on with children. Many, many years ago, one of my children had to be hospitalized for a serious condition. Um, and my daughter, who uh, lived out of state, took her son, who was all of maybe six years old, five, six years old, up to visit his uncle. Did we think that we had to pre- prepare this child for what he was going to see and experience? We didn't until we saw how upset he became when he saw his uncle in a gown with tubes, not in at home, and he was shaken by them. Quickly, we realized that we hadn't laid the groundwork. What are you going to see? How are you going to react to that? Encouraging him to, to, to verbalize some of the things that were going on internally. Once we realized that, we could address it. So I think the triage aspect of this is very important. Who are the children who are mostly at risk in regards to this transitional problem? And how will you alleviate your anxiety? Will it be alleviated by someone talking to them on the phone, a stranger perhaps, or maybe someone who they're familiar with who can be um, more receptive, very much like a child will go to a grandparent to talk about problems that they won't discuss with their own mother or father. So we realize sometimes the the distance from the person needing counseling and the counselor, the distance 
of uh, not a family member is, can be very helpful. So I don't, go ahead, please. Yeah, so I, I think what we've really discovered here is that this might be a need without, just like the corona in a way, without a clear-cut solution. Because as, as efficient as principles are, and one of the principles that actually did a show with me a couple of weeks ago, John Kroll, told me he's worked harder in the last three and a half weeks than he worked ever in his whole life. He's up at seven in the morning till midnight arranging the school issues. But it sounds like as, as difficult as that is, this other problem, which we know is going to arise, is something which I'm not sure if we have a solution for. Because the, the parents either need to be trained separately about what to say to their kids. The parents need to be able to see what's going on with their kid. And we, I'm, you're not even sure, Moish, uh, if, if the school is necessarily the right place to go for that. So we, I think we brought up an issue which, which obviously needs to be dealt with. Um, and, 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 and there needs to be, just like in the best of times, a lot of conversation between parents and teachers and principals and educators and, and everyone in order for everyone to be served best. You know, let's take this a little bit, now that you've brought it up, let's take it a little bit on the side, which is really more your bread and butter. Besides the children that we've talked about and the quandary of how they are going to be served in this time and how things are going to be explained to them, let's talk about the adults who are depending on counselors. Let's talk about on a a real basic level, people who have... uh, regularly scheduled meetings with their therapist, their counselor. What are they going to do here? Uh, uh, they can't meet them. Um, obviously, good friends, and if you, if you feel connected, you can do the type of thing we're doing now, which is talking through Zoom. But what about if somebody um, needs someone to talk to, uh, doesn't have the relationship with that person, what are they supposed to do? He can't make an appointment now. When no one is seeing everyone, everybody is is in, in quarantine and solitude. What should those people who who feel they need someone to talk to do during this period? Well, I think some of these counseling centers are the ones to address that. Uh, they have their existent counselees. Many of them have dropped away. We have social workers in the family who say basically the business is drying up because people are only accustomed to talking face to face and it's foreign to them and less effective in their minds to talk to somebody on the phone or if they have a Zoom kind of a connection, which most people don't have, they're relying upon the phone. So the number of, of clients that they have who are willing to talk has dropped off. Concerns, well, who's helping them? What's happening with them? they falling between the crack now because I can't have a one-to-one for them. So that's a concern of the council. What do they do about it? But the point that you're raising, what about the people who need now, who have come to the point that they want to speak to somebody who normally would come in and then be set at ease by the counselor, uh, being encouraged to, to relax and be able to open themselves up. Can they do that on the telephone? I was thinking about this earlier. And I thought that there were, there's a, this is a double-edged sword. To some extent, when you speak to someone face-to-face, it can be intimidating. You have to share with the stranger. They look at you, you look at them, which is, I think, why this, uh, psychoanalysis puts you on a couch where you're not looking at the, uh, the counselor. You're looking at the ceiling, you're looking at your feet, but you're not face-to-face. So there is 
and it's already a built-in model in which you don't have to look at the person, but you have to feel the person is there for you and able to talk to you, etc. So the phone session can somewhat replicate maybe a pre-existing relationship with a counselor. A new person, though, doesn't have that. The only thing they have is a telephone. How many people want to talk to someone on a telephone that they've never met, they can't see them, they can't have a real relationship? So it, that that breaking the ice is going to be very difficult. And I haven't spoken to any counselors who have tried to do this to find out whether this is successful. I would be curious to know, since we have no choice, we're doing things that we've never never done before. We're hoping that they're uh, they're successful and they're effective. And it's hard it's hard to know from the other side. Will the person make the next phone call? Will it be a follow up session, or do they feel you know this was not what I was looking for? So we're in the infancy of this new way, and I would think maybe some of these things will continue on. Even the modes of teaching, the modes of sharing, uh, so many. Shiurim, so many opportunities to learn, which were there, but people didn't know about it. They didn't look into it. Now, all of a sudden, it's every single day, it's another opportunity to learn. I would hope, this is off subject somewhat, that these different modalities don't all of a sudden disappear. We go back to the old and only the old way of doing it. Well, if, if, again, I did speak about this on one of our programs, and I'm sure every, uh, it's not new. Uh, people like uh, Rabbi Francis Nataf and others have been talking about this, about actually uh, shoring up and garnering positive things from this terrible time in order to flower in the new time. And that's something which uh, I did a program on that called Rizcha Daraisa, episode 13. So you could listen to that. And uh, we, we make a couple of suggestions there about how things go for the better. But, but I will ask you, because um, we're sort of, haven't really, I mean, we've talked about problems and issues, and I think those, it's good to speak that these issues are there, and I think you would agree, Rabbi Abramowitz, that it's important for people to do whatever they can if they are suffering from over-anxiety and difficulty now, um, and, and, and all the self-help preaching that you might hear isn't good enough for them, because it's, it's a biological issue plus a psychological issue. Just telling a person, don't be nervous, be happy, turn on happy music, uh, don't obsess over uh, the numbers of deaths that are occurring uh, throughout the world, especially in the United States. You tell someone that, but if they have a type of nature where they are nervous, obsessive, and, or whatever their, whatever their uh, diagnosis is, it's not going to really help them preaching at them. They're going to need some professional counseling, and I'm sure you encourage them to try to do something to get it. Um, along with the, as we talked about, the, the youngest people, maybe the older people. How about this? Let's end with one uh, question. There's probably people who are going to uh, listen to our program, download it, and, I'm, and, and they're going to want to hear a message from a counselor. What message would you give uh, as a counselor? To people now, I know that it's besides positivity, would you have some some words of counseling to someone who needs it right now? Uh, in a vague, obviously you don't know the person, you're not seeing the body language and seeing what you don't have the history. Well, can you give us some counseling? I know you've we, we, there's been a number of, of terrible uh, uh, people, deaths, and situations that have occurred among people that we both know. Um, can you give us some words of of, of 
of counseling and strength to, to go to, to, to garner, to go through this. Well, sort of picking up on that, when you, when people have had a loss in our community and around the world, uh, where normally they would go and pay a shiva call, they would pay a condolence call to the family. And so the human interaction, knowing that someone cares, someone has come, someone's taken out time of their day, maybe they didn't know the deceased very well, but they showed that as a human being, they want to be close and supportive of another human being. Now we're, we've lost that. Although just now I heard that you could, one particular family that had a loss has set up Zoom opportunities throughout the day for people to, to connect with the mourning family, not just verbally by talking to them on the phone and telling them messages of comfort, et cetera, but to look at one-to-one. So the message is, regardless of how we do this, whether we're able to do it through a Zoom situation or from afar or on the phone, the human contact is very, very important. It was most recently one of the, the Rosh Yeshiva of why you posed the question or was posed to him, what about people who are isolated, who are perhaps in the hospital? Uh, they have no contact with family members um, and, and especially over now, we will have a three-day, two days of Yom Tov and one day of Shabbos. What, how do we deal with these people? Strangers are taking care of them. They don't have the normal support that they would have of their family. And he was addressing the question of whether, how do you support these people in a time when normally there would be totally si- total silence for a long extended period of time? And he did have a psakwaka, which was really almost saying that if the person is really in that situation of a life and death situation, they might take their life, they might harm themselves. There are ways around it. But what does it say? It says how important it is for human beings to be with one another, to know that there's someone hearing, someone listening, someone supportive and sensitive of what their problems are. And unless we open up the door to begin the conversation, set the people at ease, hear what their story is, hear what their or the inner workings of their anxiety. If you don't do that, then you're leaving them alone. You're, you're abandoning them. And so that has to be, the door has to be there open. And the programs have to be there constantly. And those which are successful will be successful. And we'll have to assess them as we go along. Okay, well, I definitely echo that. And I, 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 I believe that human interaction we're discovering uh, can happen without physical interaction. And that's really bringing out the best, hopefully, with, within us. I know just one last thing. I know that you have had to, you've had to be with people who are in palliative care, people that are in a situation that is hopeless in terms at least of recovery. Maybe, you know, uh, there are people, unfortunately, who uh, have relatives that, that are very ill and perhaps aren't going to live. When you do sit at the bedside of, and you, and you speak to the families, um, being there for them and showing them that life can go on and that life can push forth past the tragedy is important. And I'm sure that those, uh, you might have to use those type of tactics today much more often than you would have wanted to, because it does seem that, that, that we are seeing around us, uh, so we need your wisdom, uh, Rabbi Abramowitz. We need people who are used to dealing with hopelessness in terms of the chance of recovery and yet strengthening the family despite that. 
And I think that those type of messages need to go out. Um, need, I think we need to accept what the statistics are telling us, that there are going to be more deaths than we expected. And because of that, we need to ready ourselves and not be paralyzed and, and, and to have the strength to go on and to give our loved ones what they need. So that's about it for today on, uh, on principle. Uh, again, keep your kids safe. Uh, keep them mentally uh, safe as well. Watch out. I think that's Rabbi Abramowitz's message is, parents, watch out and take a look at the signs of stress and issues. Step back. Don't get so caught up necessarily in what they're doing and they're the, the, the dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but take a look and see how they're being affected, some changes, and if need be, reach out for counsel. Okay. So thanks a lot, Rabbi Bramwitz. I appreciate giving, you. giving us your time today. And we'll see you hopefully in some future time in the week or so, hopefully soon with another edition of On Principle. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.